So 30 years, <laughs> it's like, I guess this gray hair came um, honestly through all that time, but it sort of went by very quickly. And uh, I studied with my teacher, Les, at Conando for 15 years. And then the last, I'd say, five years of that started Zen Heart Sangha. And uh, there's a, uh, a Zendo in my home, which is about two-thirds the size of this room and uh, is a dedicated space just for them. And we do that on Saturdays. And then I worked as a teacher and later administrator at a private progressive school called Peninsula School in Menlo Park, which is sort of a one of a kind. Uh, and they are celebrating their hundredth anniversary in about two years. So when I arrived there, I thought, oh my goodness, right livelihood. They had been started by um, the Duvenex, who were Quakers. And when they looked around, they didn't see anything they liked for their children. <laughs> so they started their own school, which is kind of the way things happened in those days. So I ended up being the librarian at that school for 27 years. And then the assistant head for another six. And then in the last two of those six became the pandemic coordinator and you can imagine what a stressful job that was. So instead of my job getting easier as I got older, it actually got more complicated. And during all of this time, continuing along with many other people in the group to support practice in the area around Stanford University. So um, I'm very fortunate because uh, Patrick and I were together just last week uh, at the Branching Streams Conference mm -hmm. and uh, had a chance to get to know each other before tonight, which was good for both of us, I think. Very nice. Yeah. And uh, so what I wanted to talk about tonight uh, is about the nature of impermanence. And I'm gonna say some things that I know you already know, but they are worth repeating. But then I'm also going to talk about uh, a book that if you haven't read, you should. And if you have read, you'll know why I'm talking about it. Uh, Ruth Ozeki, who is about to receive Dharma transmission, I understand from Norman Fisher. Uh, her first book was wonderful, but her second book was miraculous. Uh, the Book of Form and Emptiness. And it is not what you think it's going to be about at all. Mm -hmm but I'm going to be quoting some parts from that tonight. So you all know probably that there are these three marks of existence. These are things that we can talk to other people about uh, in a way that they could understand without jargon. The first is the truth of suffering. You know, that is the first mark of existence. Nobody gets out without it. It's just the way I describe it to my Sangha is the distance between what actually is and the way we want it to be. So if my ice cream is now gone, you know, I kind of expected that would happen. So the distance between what is and what I'd want, maybe another scoop is pretty small. 
if I find out tomorrow that I have breast cancer, oh, then the distance gets really big because I don't want that. That's our normal way of thinking about it. Buddhism is all about trying to figure out how to lessen that gap. So that's the first mark. The second mark, which I'm gonna be talking about a lot tonight is impermanence. And 30 years has just gone by in my life. I know I was busy. I know I taught a lot of wonderful children and you know, thousands of kids really. And I know that I have grown old. I started practice at 29, I am now 68. So that time went by very fast and it was all over the map, wonderful, terrible, and all everything in between. The thing about impermanence that we realize is everything is on its way to becoming something else. So, Humans are, we get older if we're lucky. Animals change. I live in the middle of the redwoods. And although they look very permanent, this wild last winter was so bad that I actually had a giant redwood come down on my property. And fortunately it missed my propane tank by 10 feet and my house. My sister wanted to know what I was going to do about the tree. I said, I'm going to leave it where it is. Oh, doesn't the city come and do something? No, they're not going to come and do anything. It's, it's going to decompose, which is the next stage of impermanence. But even things that seem really permanent. Highway 17, the route to my house, 84. Last winter in February, we were notified that the entire road had slid sideways and down into a creek. The entire road. I've lived there for 40 years and we've often lost one lane, but we have never lost the entire road. And so for five months, while we were waiting for them to at least give us one lane, which is what we have now, we were going down little tiny, often one lane, roads with lots of switchbacks, very scary. And because I have uh, glaucoma, especially in my left eye, that meant I couldn't drive at night anymore. Well, this was huge. It was like, I'm a very independent person. What, I can't drive at night because I don't know these other roads. Everything is on its way to becoming something else. <clears throat> And then finally, the final mark of existence. It's a little more difficult to talk about, so we have to be careful not to use jargon when we talk to other people, is emptiness. The nature of emptiness, that there is no fundamentally abiding nature of anything. So the way that we can talk about that instead of talking, saying the word emptiness is, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh often talks about uh, oneness, unity. And that's true too. And pretty much when you start talking to people about that you don't exist in a vacuum, that everything has to work together or it doesn't work at all. 
And we can use Rhodes as the perfect example. The only reason I can be here tonight is because I know how to drive a car. People built roads. People built the cars. Someone had to figure all this out. Someone had to figure out traffic signs and traffic rules. There is no such thing as just you stepping out your door and getting in your car. <laughs> so that's how I explain it to people who don't have a deeper understanding as you do of emptiness. And they all go, oh, right. <laughs> so during this crazy period of trying to be the pandemic coordinator for my school and taking care of 350 children and staff members and keeping them safe, testing every other week, quarantining, talking to San Mateo County to get the latest stuff. It, it was very stressful. And every day I would go to my altar of Suzuki Roshi in the Zendo and I would beg him, please get me through another day. And he did. But during this time also, a friend gave me this book, the book of form and emptiness as a holiday gift. Now I have to tell you in my very early years before I ever came to practice, I was a graphic designer. One look at this book and I thought, oh yuck, I do not like the cover. I do not like the graphic design. And unfortunately, even as a librarian who knows better than to judge a book by its cover, I did. So it took me a long time to finally decide to read this book. But in the meantime, I had retired from my job finally. And within six weeks of retiring, a very dear friend and member of my sangha had a major stroke. So much for my retirement because it turned out that from the last stroke she'd had 10 years earlier, I was still her healthcare director. And then I ended up having to become her power of attorney because she completely lost her entire short-term memory. I had to put her in a facility and I had to figure out how to take care of her. And then we found out she had stage four cancer on top of everything. So the next year of my life, was taking care of my friend. So I finally opened up this book because I really needed something. It was the perfect book, it turns out. I knew that my friend was dying. She was younger than I was. The road had broken down completely. My glaucoma was getting worse. And it reminded me I have studied tea for all of those 30 years as well, tea ceremony. And at one point, probably 15 years after I'd been practicing with my teacher, I accidentally chipped her 300 year old tea bowl. And when I had to walk in to the little tea room with the bowl to show her what I had done, I just wanted to disappear into the floor. And I started by saying, I know I can fix this. I have fixed other things, but I also know 
it is no longer an invaluable antique <laughs> once you fix it. So I handed it to her. My tea teacher was 40 years older than me. And she held the bowl in her hand and she looked at it and she looked at it. Meanwhile, I am dying a thousand deaths thinking this is it. She's gonna tell me I cannot be her tea student anymore. I'm too careless, thoughtless. And finally still holding the bowl, she turns to me and she says, well, these things happen. This is the best teaching of my life. She understood what was important. She loved that bowl. It was her prized possession, but she loved me more. I will never forget that. In this book, there is also something broken. So let me start sharing the part that was like written for me. Ruth doesn't know me. I know of her. But one of the main characters is a Buddhist nun in Japan who has been sort of modeled after Marie Kondo, the tidiness queen. <clears throat> only she is actually a Buddhist nun and she and her master are the only two people left in this temple. And there are no other students and she's desperately trying to figure out ways to keep the Zen center going. And she realizes the one thing she can teach is how to be tidy. <laughs> so this comes from already page 400. It's a long book, okay. One day when I was serving tea to my teacher, the teacup slipped off the tray and fell to the floor. It was an antique cup, very old, very beautiful with a poem inscribed on it. My teacher had received it as a gift from his teacher. It was his favorite teacup and very precious to him. Ha! I cried out when it hit the floor. My teacher looked up from his book and nodded. Already broken. He went back to his reading. I was confused. The teacup wasn't already broken. And thankfully it survived the fall to the floor. I picked it up and examined it. I did not find a single chip or crack. I washed it, brought it back and carefully served my teacher his tea. When he asked me to join him, I expected him to say something about my clumsiness or to explain what he'd meant, but he didn't. He just quietly sipped his tea and gazed out into the garden as if nothing had happened. Finally, I couldn't stand it anymore. Hold your son. I put down my cup. Your teacup didn't break. Why did you say it was already broken? He held up his cup and admired it. Oh, it is quite old, you know, maybe 200 years. It was made by Rengetsu. Do you know who Rengetsu was? This, by the way, is a real person. She was a great beauty, but had a very sad life. She was an illegitimate child and was given away for adoption 
when she was just an infant. Later, she married twice, but both husbands and all five children died. And so she shaved her head and became a Buddhist nun. Oh, she was poor, but creative. And so she started making pottery and writing poems on her cups and bowls. Oh, they became very popular. And she made a lot of money, but she gave it all away to the poor. I was listening to this impatiently. He often did this, went off on some tangent and forgot about my question. But this time I was determined to get an answer. He was reading the nun's poem on the side of the cup. Ah, the world's dust swept aside here in my hermitage. I have all I need, the wind in the pines. What, Hojo-san, the teacup isn't broken. He looked up, surprised. Well, to me it is. It is the nature of a teacup to be broken. That is why it is so beautiful now and why I appreciate it when I can still drink from it. <clears throat> he looked at it fondly, took a last sip, placed the empty cup carefully back on the tray. When it is gone, it is gone. That day, my teacher gave me a priceless lesson in the impermanence of form and the empty nature of all things already broken, everything on its way to becoming something else. And when it is gone, it's gone. And that is its beauty. And this is why our practice emphasizes being in the present not muddling around in the past, which we can't change, or even muddling around in the future, which we can't predict, but just right here. That is also why we have a practice of meditating on death and dying, sitting in cemeteries or sitting by the bedside of friends who are dying. I highly recommend it. Because we never know when it's all going to be taken away from us. We aren't going to last forever either. And everything you know and love and cherish is going to leave, including you. <clears throat> so a little later in the book, there's like five main characters. And one of the things I have to say as a librarian is that one of the characters is the book itself. The book actually talks to you. But later in the book, <clears throat> the nun comes back. Another teacup lesson came several years later after my teacher had died. On March 11, 2011, at 2.46 p.m., a magnitude nine undersea megathrust earthquake struck off the northeastern coast of Japan. I was in the kitchen at the little temple in Tokyo, 373 kilometers from the epicenter, preparing tea 
when all of a sudden I was knocked sideways and Rengetsu's teacup went flying out of my hands. My teacher had given me the teacup when he made me his Dhamma heir, and I treasured it. As it flew from my hands, I lunged, cursing myself for my clumsiness. And the next moment, I was lying on the floor. Only then did I realize what was happening. Pots and pans were sliding off the countertop. Dishes were shattering and crashing to the ground. I covered my head and rolled onto my hands and knees. The ground was lurching beneath me tossing me from right to left, and everywhere food was flying. <clears throat> Somehow, I managed to crawl to the stove and turn off the gas. The earthquake lasted for six long minutes. And when it was over and I cleaned up the kitchen, I found Rengetsu's teacup in pieces on the floor. I gathered the shards and brought them into my study and laid them on the altar in front of my teacher's portrait. You were right, Hojo-san, already broken. What we experienced in Tokyo was nothing compared to what was happening in the North, where a terrible tsunami wave was forming in the ocean that would destroy everything in its path and sweep more than 15,000 people out to sea in one day. Over the next few days, the whole world watched the deadly surge of dark water breach the seawalls, pouring into cities and towns and turning them to rubble. We watched people stumbling across fields, trying to escape to higher elevations, we watched cars and trucks being swept along, their drivers and passengers trapped inside, their terrified faces pressed against the glass. Entire apartment buildings were ripped from their foundations and carried inland by this black wave. While the families who lived there clung to the roof and called from the windows, begging to be rescued. When the wave reversed direction, they were all sucked out to sea. So many people died. So many people just vanished. Others managed to escape with their lives only to lose all their possessions. Houses, cars, clothing, jewelry, electronics, appliances, everything they had worked so hard to acquire, not to mention the priceless keepsakes, photo albums, letters, souvenirs, mementos, family treasures that had been carefully passed down to each generation. This was another important lesson in the impermanence of all things. Japan, lies in a seismically active zone. So earthquakes are not uncommon. Disaster can strike at any moment, but we forget this. 
we are distracted by the bright, shiny comforts of our everyday lives. Wrapped in a false sense of security, we fall asleep. And in this dream, our life passes. The earthquake shook us awake and the tsunami washed away our delusions. It caused us to question our values and our attachment to material possessions. When everything I think of as mine, my belongings, my family, my life, can be swept away in an instant, I have to ask myself, what is real? The wave reminded us that impermanence is real. This is waking up to our true nature. Already broken. Knowing this, we can appreciate each thing as it is and love each other as we are completely, unconditionally, without expectation or disappointment. Life is even more beautiful this way, don't you think? Much later, I found a traditional craftsman who could repair the Rengetsu teacup with gold and lacquer to hold the pieces together. And now in the cracks, there are delicate seams of gold, which honor the cup's brokenness. And to my eyes, it is lovelier than ever. Everything she just talked about is real. Mostly we were concerned about the Fukushima reactors and they are just now finally letting go of the water from 2011. So during my reading of this, a very strange thing happened. I have been studying tea for a long time when my tea teacher was getting very old, she sat me down and we went through all of her tea things and she told me who she wanted to receive those things. And the one thing that she had wanted me to have for a long time was her brazier. Her brazier is very special. There's the heating element on the bottom and then there's the part that holds the hot water that's called the kama. On the kama, are embossed characters. And those characters say, tea makes good friends. And I was so happy to know that I would have that brazier. Well, when Peg was getting very ill, her son came from Hawaii and she told him of her plans. And he said, but mom, no, I, I wanted that brazier because I want to set up a little place in my condo with a, a scroll and the brazier and a, and a teacup and the natsume that holds the tea as a, as a way to honor you and remember you every day. What was she gonna say to her son? No. So she apologized profusely and I said, Peg, no, this is right, he should have it. So off the brazier went and my tea students gave me a, a gift one year to go and get one for myself. So last year in the middle of all of this other stuff, 
I have been working on a book for a long time, which is partly about tea, partly about my extraordinary teacher, Peg, partly about Zen. And I realized it would be nice for me to have a photo of that brazier because one of the chapters will, about, will be about how tea makes good friends. So I wrote to her son and I said, is there any chance that you could take a photo of this? He calls me up and he says, you know, when I took my mother's things, I put all that stuff in boxes. There were about 20 boxes and they've been behind the condo all this time. This is 15 years later, right? That's <laughs> like, really? You didn't make the little altar to her and all that? No, didn't do it. He says, so I'm gonna send it to you. There are four big boxes. I'm just gonna send you everything. I said, well, don't you wanna unpack them and make sure that that's what's in there? Nope, I'm just sending it to you. So in the middle of last summer, four giant boxes arrive. My husband has had put them in the living room and I'm thinking these must weigh a ton. Actually, they didn't. Because the reason he didn't want to open them up, he said, because they are filled with styrofoam peanuts. When I picked them, I could pick them up, except the one that had the brazier in it. There were so many peanuts. I have never seen that many peanuts. But inside, it was like Christmas in July. The brazier was definitely in there. But so were other things I hadn't seen in 15 years. And I wanted to share one of them with you tonight. Because it has to do with this story. So I told you that she had a 300-year-old tea bowl that accidentally, but still happened, it rolled, a metal lid from the top of the brazier rolled across her sink, which was just a big metal sink. And her 300 year bowl was over in this corner sitting there. And it was like something, if you've ever been in an accident, you know how things go in really slow motion all of a sudden. I just watched this thing roll, roll, and it went, dink, and two minuscule little pieces went. <sighs> that was a 300-year-old bowl. What I unpacked, this is from 1300. I had forgotten that in her back room, she had some real treasures. I think I only saw this bowl once. However, it didn't survive from 1300 because it also has been fixed, mended beautifully with that same style of the gold, which is called Kintsugi. So you can see maybe all the gold of the cracks. I'm gonna leave it up here. I don't think I should pass it around. <laughs> it's already broken, right? <laughs> I don't wanna break it again, but I will leave it up here and so that you can come up and look at it. It is truly beautiful. And it is the, the little thing on the side said, it is, from, it is early Yuan, if you know your Chinese periods. But 
This is exactly what she is talking about in the book, that it was cracked and someone <clears throat> with incredible skill came and put it back together with this gold. I've used it once. At Jan in January, we always have a tea uh, for my teacher at the beginning of the new year to honor her and thank her. I have another tea teacher now and he is still very much alive, but I continue to honor Peg. So I will put this up here for you to see, but the final thing I want to say is that in the Dhammapada, there is a section in the very beginning called pairs because there are two paired verses. And in the first one, it says, he abused me, he overpowered me, he robbed me. And those who harbor such thoughts do not still their hatred. Harboring those thoughts is about being unwilling to forgive. You may not forget, but it's very important to learn how to forgive. But the second pair says the same thing. He abused me. He overpowered me. He robbed me. There are those who do not realize that one day we all must die. But those who do realize this settle their quarrels. When we deeply see the truth of impermanence and emptiness and that we are all interconnected, absolutely and completely, we realize that we can end the suffering of our hurts by forgiving, by settling our quarrels, even with people that we feel very wronged by. And they might not forgive us. That's okay. We don't have to worry about that. There is no time. We could have a nine megathrust earthquake right now off the Santa Cruz Harbor and it'd be over. You know, the tsunami, we couldn't get high enough fast enough. There's no time. There's just now. And unfortunately, we can't fill the cracks of our life with gold. All of us have cracks in our life. All of us have places where mm -hmm. we don't forgive, where we feel wounded, where we feel attacked. And the only thing I can say that works is to fill those cracks with your love and compassion and wisdom. And that is how we mend our already broken selves. Thank you so much for being here tonight. And it doesn't have to be about what I said, or you could contribute something of your own experience. <laughs> yes. We are all Dharma dust. <laughs> This is from the Big Bang. <laughs> That's right. And therefore all related. It's just atoms reforming. Yeah. <laughs> That's right.
It's the ultimate uh, compost tape. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> yes, okay. I just wanted to share that in I've been such a wonderful teacher because like you were saying. It's, we're just in a constant flux. Mm -hmm. And it's been really in my face that it hasn't been subtle. No. And because of that, I've been able to face life with more fearlessness. Mm -hmm. Because I know that things are impermanent and that they will change. But I sort of through the process of living most of my life with this knowledge. I don't fear a lot of anything. And I like you said, I I've already been broken. And so you already understand the precious nature of your life. Yeah. Long before the rest of us figured this out. And it's such a, that's the, that's the gold lining and silver from the past. Yeah. Because I, the more that we understand that things are impermanent and precious, the more. Right. And and joy in simple small things. You know, just being able to breathe. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. When we were at the conference, um, I know Patrick will remember this too. We were very gifted to have the Santa Cruz poet laureate Danusha come and give us a poetry reading and a beautiful poetry. But what was surprising to me was that at the end, she said, okay, now I have something for all of you to do. I was like, oh no. <laughs> she said, I'm going to have you break up into small groups and I'm going to give you a prompt. And her prompt was practicing loss. Well, it was interesting because there were probably about five groups and we were all in the same room, but in these, you know, smaller groups. And all the other groups, it was laughter and shouting and you were hearing the words death and dying and medical and this and that. My group was absolutely silent. No one was speaking. Everyone's looking down and I'm thinking, oh, am I gonna have to be the first one to speak yet again? And I waited for five minutes. I thought, okay, fine, I give up. But what I said was, and, and you're reminding me of this, when she said it that way, practicing loss, I told him, I said, you know, all this time I thought I'd been practicing acceptance. 
But in fact, what I realize is what I've been practicing acceptance of is loss. We don't have to practice acceptance for all the great things that come to us. We don't tend to do that, right? What we are practicing acceptance for is everything that gets taken away from us. So I said, you know, I could be blind in my left eye fairly soon if they don't figure out what to do. But it's also the case that my husband just turned 74. And I've noticed myself thinking about what my life is going to be like if he goes first or what his life is going to be like if I go first. And that's practicing loss. And then I just started thinking, oh, my goodness, everything we're doing, we're practicing loss. And it was so interesting because even though it, it took a long time, each person finally did speak. And when they did, it came from such a deep and vulnerable place. There was such care and thoughtfulness about it. And then at the end, someone asked her, so why did you use those words practicing loss instead of practicing with loss or the art of practicing loss or how to practice with loss? And she said, I like the verb form. And I thought, yes, because we are always practicing loss. It isn't the art of, it isn't something out here. It's something we're doing all the time. And you're right, that is what makes it all so precious. Thank you. Let's just close with some four vows. Are numberless. I vow to them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become.